The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Catherine Brobeck. And I am Kemper Donovan. And this week, we are tackling some more Tommy and Tuppence. Tommy and Tuppence. What are we tackling this week, Kemper? This week is a story called Finessing the King, although it actually is a two-parter because it's based on two chapters within the Partners in Crime collection. The second part is The Gentleman Dressed in Newspaper. And these two chapters were published in The Sketch, of course. Of course. on Of course. On October 8th, 1924, as one story, the aforementioned Finessing the King, which is a pretty good title, actually. It is. It's intriguing. It's a bridge term also, mm-hmm. I believe, right? right? Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about a victim. So the victim is a Lady Merivale, and she was stabbed in the chest with her own jeweled dagger while at a Chelsea nightclub, while dressed in a mask and a Queen of Hearts costume. Sounds like a normal Friday night. So let's talk about her suspects. The first suspect, interestingly enough, is Lady Merivale herself, because Mm -hmm. it is a theory that is put forth quite seriously in this story that perhaps she committed suicide with her own dagger. It's a possibility, but another possibility is that it might have been Captain Bingo Hale. He's a dear friend of the lady, as well as her husband. And it's Bingo who was supposedly up in the club with Lady Merivale. (laughs) (laughs) So you might be suspicious of him. Bingo is his name-o. And our third and final suspect is Sir Arthur Merivale, who is the husband of poor Lady Merivale and also Bingo's dear friend Mm -hmm. and who apparently chose not to go to the club on that fateful night. Indeed. The world as it appears to be. So basically, if you're reading these in order in Partners in Crime... There's a running thread about the reason why Tommy and Tuppence have set up the detective agency, which is international espionage Mm -hmm. of some kind. And so this is a mystery that's being set between various (laughs) elaborate threads in the interstitial chapters. Yeah, we're not going to cover the interstitial thriller chapters. We've also been watching these adaptations that were done and those interstitials weren't adapted. But even if they had been, honestly, I don't think we'd be covering them because they aren't mysteries. They really are these little thriller vignettes that sort of advance that very vague espionage story. But They do, and they're all linked. So we actually couldn't yeah. just pick and choose because they're kind of linked from one to the other. So yeah. we're, on, we're only looking at the chapters that... That present uh, mysteries. mysteries yeah. Let's just put it out there. We're not missing out on much by not covering those thriller interstitial chapters more closely. 
I'm just going to say no, that. No, no, we're not missing out on very much at all. Um, <laughs> so outside of waiting for various international intrigues to come to them, let's just say that the International Detective Agency isn't exactly uh, booming. <laughs> so it's not necessarily surprising, but regardless, Tommy and Tuppence are basically just sitting in there bored to death. They're bored again. They're always bored. For for they two are. for two such effervescent people, they get quite easily bored. Well, and for two people who really attract a lot of drama, right? They are very easily bored. It's like, come on, guys! It's the Roaring Twenties in London. Have well, at it. Well, but it tur- it turns out that though Tommy, we find out, is thirty two in this story. And apparently he's just taken to, like, putting on his PJs and going to bed at 9.30. And Tuppence is not happy about that. No, (laughs) Tuppence is not happy about it, although it sounds not terrible to me. (laughs) Sounds not terrible to me either. And by the way, 32 also does not sound old to me anymore, sadly, so... Well, it sounds old to me as a (laughs) (laughs) 32-year-old. Regardless, the 32-year-old Tommy is so bored that, you know, outside of going to sleep incredibly early, he's taken to staring at print markers, uh, like the markers that you do when you send something to press on the Daily Leader, which is what Tuppence... And so instead of reading the paper, Tommy watches Tuppence read the paper, which is an interesting use of one's time. Right. (laughs) Yeah, Um, and and it's like these little marks that are in the header, the actual words that say the Daily Ledger, right? They're these little imperfections. And this is a real thing, right? I mean, this is Mm -hmm. a a real thing that's done in newspaper headers. And in a lot of print runs. You would do it... uh, You might do it in book runs and other runs, too. They're printmaker marks. To differentiate between editions, to differentiate mm-hmm. among editions. Right. Yep. yep. So if that's how bored Tommy is, Tuppence has taken to just reading all of the ads in the Daily Leader. <laughs> so she sees an ad and it reads, I should go three hearts, 12 tricks, ace of spades, necessary to finesse the king. That's a sort of a bridge sequence, I suppose, which is what, how Tommy takes it. Mm-hmm. But that is not how Tuppence takes it. She has quite a theory for what this means. First of all, she's convinced that the three hearts is a reference to the three arts ball at which someone must be having a secret rendezvous at 12 tricks, i.e. 12 p.m. at the Chelsea Boho Underground Den of Iniquity, the Ace of Spades. Indeed. And since she'd like Tommy to take her dancing instead of, you know, going to bed at 9.30, <laughs> she convinces Tommy to go with her so that they can figure out what finessing the king actually means in that string of code words. Right. There's definitely an air of innocent debauchery running throughout this whole story. And, and even with Tommy and Tuppence in general, it's like a young married couple who are just adorably naughty occasionally, you know? Right. I, I, right. I enjoy it. So, yeah, Tommy reluctantly goes along. They mosey on down to the Ace of Spades where, ooh, everyone's wearing a mask. Who's who's who? Who even knows? <laughs> very, very um, eyes wide shut. I was just about to, yes. I mean, that's the thing. <laughs> eyes wide shut, unfortunately, has ruined all references masks. to masks and masquerades. <laughs> May I ask, what is the password for the house? I seem to have forgotten it. That's unfortunate. Because here, 
it doesn't matter whether you have forgotten it or if you never knew it. You will kindly remove your mask. I do also think about the Masquerade song from Phantom of the Opera, which was always a favorite for, of, you know, masquerade. yeah, of sixth grade being. <laughs> yes. Masquerade. Masquerade. <laughs> Look around, there's another past behind you. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah, so they're um, they're masquerading it up. Tuppence dresses in drag too, mm-hmm. which is a funny twist. They dress up as McCarty and Rorden. This is one of the many, at least to us, lost references to detective fiction at the time this was published in the twenties. And they apparently are an American detection duo. And McCarty wears a fireman's kit and a helmet. So McCarty is dressed as a, I guess McCarty is a fireman of some sort. Clearly it's, you know, it's a reference that's mainly lost on us. But interestingly, the writer of McCarty and Warden was a woman. Her name was Isabel Ostrander, and she usually used a male pseudonym. And she seems to have completely fallen out of print. And in fact, the only notable thing that I found upon a cursory search for her was the fact that she's referenced in Partners in Crime. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Sure sad. Yeah. But you're not entirely forgotten, I suppose. No, no. Suffice it to say, they're both dressed as men, including Tuppence, and they seem to be detectives of an American persuasion. And perhaps right. perhaps it was a reference that people enjoyed at the time because they had read those stories. Right. And so they're sitting in their booths. So the booths in the club, which is an important element, they're all capable of being closed off. So I don't know if they have, it's not entirely clear if they have curtains or if they have doors, but you can close the booths entirely for privacy. But there's open though, because they want to watch the crowd because they want to see who is having this rendezvous. Mm-hmm. So they like see all these different couples pairing up, and one of the couples that they happen to see includes a Queen of Hearts and a gentleman dressed in newspaper from Alice in Wonderland, and they end up in the booth next to Tommy and Tuppence. There's some murmuring in that booth, and then a sort of gasp, and then a male laugh, but that's mm-hmm. all that Tuppence can really hear, and the gasp is odd, but it's also not entirely out of character because again this is kind of naughty fun times happening here so who knows what's happening in these well it's, these it's after midnight right yeah. this is, and Tuppence's <laughs> point is that the club really isn't all that bad you just go there after you go to the like the respectable parties so that you can get some quote unquote eggs and sausage and some Welsh rarebit people go there to have the next phase of their evening you coming to the after after party we have after after parties yo lemon you coming to the after 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 party 
Kick it up a notch, perhaps. Indeed. After the eavesdropping, Tuppence does notice that the gentleman dressed in newspaper gets up, and so they're like, oh, he's off awfully fast, and they decide that he's just going to go refresh drinks or something. But cut to five-plus minutes later, and he never comes back. Right. I, I noticed this being a pattern that Tuppence has these feelings where she's like, I just know that something's wrong or, or you know, there's there's just something not right with this situation. So she insists on actually checking in on the booth next door and seeing what's happening. And what does she find there, Catherine? Well, the <laughs> Queen of Hearts is stabbed in the chest with a jeweled dagger and is bleeding out. <laughs> she really is bleeding out. I mean, there, the description is, you know, that her costume is red and white. It's like red and but white checked. Yeah, but it's now red in places where it should not have been red. Yeah, he was. her dress was carried out in a bold design of red and white, but on the left-hand side, the pattern seemed to have got mixed. There was more red than there should have been. Ellipses. <laughs> oh, no. And so immediately Tuppence tells Tommy to go get help, and she takes the Queen of Hearts face mask off. Mm-hmm. And the woman looks horrified, and Tuppence tries to get her to speak, and the woman sort of gaspingly says, Bingo did it. And then she dies. Yes, yet another situation in which someone conveniently is able to utter a cryptic phrase before expiring. Why didn't they ask Evans? Or um, Seven Dials, tell Jimmy Thesiger. I think that was it. <laughs> Oof. So, yeah, that's that's interesting. And Tommy and Tuppence... And then they, and then they just go home. They go, well, I mean, Tuppence is totally horrified by this whole experience. She... Um, takes forever to go to sleep. She doesn't fall asleep until dawn, and then she wakes up really late. And at that point, the Inspector Marriott has shown up, and um, he is there along with Sir Arthur Merivale, who is the deceased lady's husband, and they identified her the night before. And Sir Arthur wanted to hear directly from Tuppence what his dear, dear wife's last words were, because he cannot believe that his friend Bingo would have murdered his wife. Bingo is such... A wonderful friend, but indeed, Tuppen says, no, that, that that is what I heard. And furthermore, they discover that Bingo went to the masquerade. Even more unfortunately for poor Bingo, Lady Merivale had ripped part of that newspaper costume and held it in her hand in her death grip as she was dying. And they have that now. So things, don't, things don't look good for Bingo. Ooh, that's a Bingo. <laughs> Is that the way you say it? That's a bingo. You just say bingo. Bingo! How fun! (laughs) No, and even more unfortunately, although it would appear that maybe bingo was possibly carrying on with Lady Maryvale, he was, I guess, supposedly at least, interested in another young lady with considerable wealth, one who wasn't married. And so it's entirely possible that Lady Marival was jealous and was interfering even worse. Clearly, Bingo must have placed that ad to set their rendezvous and warn her to put off her husband, who 
had only decided to attend the three arts ball like the day before. So yeah, Inspector Marriott is like, well, it's you know, this is a particularly cut and dry case. Every all the evidence seems to be there. It's all stacked up against bingo. Ooh, that's a bingo. So yeah, let's talk about the world as it actually is. Well, if things were actually that cut and dry, I suppose we wouldn't have much of a mystery, would we? We would not. <laughs> we would be in so, one of the interstitial chapters in that case. <laughs> indeed. So, clue numero uno is that, in fact, print setting, little bit of minutia at the beginning of the story in the Daily Ledger's banner. First of all, if you're a careful reader, you would think it's a really odd detail for Tommy to dwell on at length. Right. At the beginning and, of the story. Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, a corollary to Christy Clues and short stories that we've developed at this point. The short stories are easier to solve because they're simpler, but what makes them particularly easier to solve is that it's harder to bury information in a short story because it's short. So mm-hmm. if Christy is dwelling on something that seems odd to dwell on, it's because it's significant and it's key to solving the mystery. Right. So the clue is pay attention to the dots in the letters right. in the Daily Letters banner. And pay attention, Tuppence does, because Inspector Marriott subsequently brings along crime scene and evidence photos of the costume that they have found. Mm-hmm. Bingo's costume from the club. And Tuppence instantly remembers that even though the piece of torn paper matches, so the piece that was in Lady Mirabel's hand, and the piece that was torn off, the dots don't match because the costume's paper is from a different day, which can only mean one thing. Someone tampered with either the evidence in Lady Maribel's hand or they tampered with the costume. Right, and this is where I would actually take a bit of issue with this clue within the story because one could argue, and I'm sure there are, are cases where it's the way that Christie has written it, but I believe in general the dots, and as, as we were just explaining, the printmaker's marks are used to specify which edition a newspaper is. So I believe it's standard practice for these dots to correspond to a specific edition on a day, meaning that there are multiple scenarios within a day, not that the dots differ by day. Well, right. But I mean, regardless, it's not the same. It's a terror. It's a different it's not and it's the, not it's, from the same paper. So it could have been correct. like from the morning edition on Monday correct. and then it could have been from the afternoon edition on Monday or the afternoon. Correct. It's just from different editions as opposed to different days, I think would be the slightly more accurate clue. But in the story, yes. it's definitely billed as, oh, it's a different day. And like I said, I'm sure that happens, too. But the fuzziness there bothers me a little bit. I lead a small life. What can I say? (laughs) (laughs) So clue number two is that Bingo's one defense is that he insists that he was slipped a note that said, don't try to speak to me tonight. Arthur suspects. Yet at the same time, Lady Mirabel was sitting in that booth in Ace of Spades. And so she was clearly waiting for him. Right. So if she'd given him that note, either he's lying or she didn't give him that note. That's the deduction, because why else would she be there and bingo say that he got a note saying not to go there? I mean, what's really unfortunate for bingo is the fact that he doesn't have the note he was slipped. It would have been nice if he had kept the note. And it's a little convenient that he didn't. But he did. He's, right. he, he, he says he didn't. So either the note didn't exist or he failed to keep it. All right, clue number three, money. 
Lucre, right? Our mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. one of mm-hmm. our beloved elves. So supposedly, Lady Merivale either killed herself or was murdered because Bingo was going to take off with another woman who had an equally large amount of money as Lady Merivale. But what if Bingo wasn't going to take off at all, but perhaps Lady Merivale was intending to do so with Bingo? There's basically no reason to assume that Bingo was a bad guy, since everyone seems to agree that Bingo is a good guy, including even the professional detective on the case, Mm -hmm. Inspector Marriott. So perhaps we should look at this from another way. Right, about who else might have motive if that were the case. Right, if it were the case that it was Lady Merivale intending to leave her marriage as opposed to Bingo intending to leave his relationship with Lady Merivale, then who has the motive? Who indeed? Hmm, I wonder Mm. who. Is it it the only other person we mentioned? (laughs) Head scratcher, that. By Um, the way, and I will just also say my quibble with this in this story is that Bingo's character is actually quite important to the story, and we don't ever actually meet Bingo. No. Bingo. I think think it would have been nice if we had met Bingo. Indeed. Um, Especially because clue number four Mm. is Inspector Marriott's really weird insistence that this was so easily tied up with a bow and how funny that is and isn't that weird and like Ah, Tommy and Tuppence, this kind of stuff never happens. Hmm. Wink, wink. Hmm. (laughs) And so the deduction which Tuppence, to her obvious credit, very quickly makes is that he is saying that this is, like, anomalous and that something is up. And he can't do anything about it because they have all the evidence. Right. And it all points at bingo. So he can't exactly, like, waste Scotland Yard resources doing anything. But he's basically nudging Tommy and Tuppence to look into this a little bit further or think a little bit more deeply about what it is that they saw. Right. Because in his heart of hearts, he knows that something's off. He thinks bingo is a good guy. And guess who he does not think is a good guy? Sir Arthur, the husband. Indeed. Never trust the husband, except when you do. Yeah, so Tuppence catches on to that right quick, and she does some thinking, and then she gets Tommy to call both Sir Arthur and the inspector into their flat, I suppose, in in London. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so Sir Arthur comes into their living room, and then she essentially does the... Oh-so-classic explanation to the villain, spoiler here, but Sir Arthur did it, (laughs) explaining exactly what he did and how he did it. So let's talk about that. Yeah, so basically, Sir Arthur had caught on to the affair, and I think he'd, like, pretty much let it go. But then it became kind of clear that maybe Lady Marival would be leaving him for bingo. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's not so much that he cared about his wife leaving him. It's that he cared about her money leaving him. Right. And so what did he do? He slipped Bingo a fake note telling him not to meet Lady Marival. Which note then Bingo lost, I guess. Indeed. (laughs) Then he donned Bingo's costume himself. He showed up at the Ace of Spades. And then, without giving it any time for her to realize the difference, he kissed his wife, a Judas kiss, as it were, right? And stabbed her through the chest and left. And the saddest saddest part about this, I just want to point out, 
is that when Lady Mirabel said Bingo did it and looked horrified to Tuppence, it's because she really thought that her, like, l- like her great love, who she was rendezvousing with, had just stabbed her in the heart, literally. It's really sad. She died thinking she had been betrayed by her one love. Who was, uh, you know, not her husband, but... <laughs> but, hey, apparently hey. Her, her husband wasn't such a great guy, so, you know what? No, not so much. That's all right, so Lady what does, uh, what does Sir Arthur do after that, Kemper? First, yet another quibble, and I promise it's my last with this story. It wasn't made clear to me in Christie's story, although this was amended in the adaptation, which we'll get to in a second, but there's a much simpler way out of the conundrum of Lady Merivale having ripped off a piece of the newspaper in her hand, which is to remove the piece of newspaper from her hand. And I suppose we have to assume what they assumed when they were doing the adaptation, which is that Sir Merivale did not realize that the newspaper had been torn off until he left the scene of the crime and going back to the scene of the crime would have been too risky. Well, that makes sense. It does make sense, but it is not made clear within the explaining of the solution of this mystery. And that annoyed me. Well, I mean, there's not exactly a lot of room in a short story for that sort of thing. Make it a little longer. Although, who knows? Maybe the sketch editor was like, listen, we have have room for, like, 1,200 words, and that's it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) True. Yeah. I mean... I, I, that's how I assumed. I mean, I assumed that he he just didn't realize until he left. Right. We're not done yet, though, because once Tuppence tells it like it is, Sir Merivale admits it, as one does in these classic explain to the villain scenarios. And Inspector Marriott hears a confession. He comes out for the next room where he's been hiding. A Jap-like move, if ever, yeah, if ever I've heard one. Ah, J- Inspector Jap is behind the curtain. Um, <laughs> right, it's in, it's in the Veiled Lady where you're like, how long was he hiding in Poirot's bedroom for? Yeah, and then Sir Sir Merivale, we should have perhaps mentioned that the living room of Tommy and Tuppence's flat is on the second floor. It has a lovely view of London. It has a lovely, lovely view of London and an open window. And, oh, (laughs) toodaloo. This used to be the most exciting city in the world, and now it's nothing but smoking near a fucking open window. New York is over. O-V-E-R. Over. No one's fun anymore. Whatever happened to fun? God, I'm so bored I could die. It was the first time Lexi had ever left a party early. I was not expecting that to happen in this story. This is even weirder because he's basically like, oh, yes, you guys got me. Like, fair enough. <laughs> like, good good game. Good game. Good folks. show. Good show. All's, all's fair that ends in love and... Yeah, and then he just, like, literally... Yeah, turns around and, like, steps up and leaps from the window. Yep. And yep. Toppins, poor Toppins, who's already been traumatized with the dead woman, has to, like, cover her ears because she doesn't want to hear the, the thud sound. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is Toppins' second violent death that she has witnessed in as in many like days. Day. Yeah. Yeah. But the, and this is what I thought was so weird too because Tommy gives her something and Inspector Marriott is like, "Oh no, she says, what is it, brandy?" And he says, "No, it's a large cocktail suitable for a triumphant McCarty." Again, McCarty was the D- Isabel Ostrander never forget one of her detectives. Yes, Marriott's right all round. That was the way of it. A bold finesse for game and rubber. 
Tuppence nodded, but he finessed the wrong way around. And so, said Tommy, exit the king. I mean, that is a rather jaunty ending for a man having just splatted 50 feet down right outside your building. Yeah, horrif- like, horrifying. Like, yeah. And I'd probably think that they would have to like have interviews with the police. You would right. think that other people would be like in their apartment. Like, Tuppence's reaction is appropriate. I don't think Tommy has exactly the right reaction here. No, it's a little insensitive, shall we say? That seems very Tommy-ish, generally. He's, like, hard-headed. He slogs his way through problems, because I think he just kind of can put his head down and, like, get through it, but he's not... Well, he he's also not the brighter of the two. No, um, he's not. <laughs> he's not, although he has his... And this is a good segue, because let's just talk about the adaptation for a little bit. He gets way more credit in the adaptation than he does in the book. In this one, he probably does, but in some of the adaptations, I think he gets less. Christy writes him as having a sort of grunt level ability to solve problems that has nothing to do with cleverness. Tuppence is clearly the clever one, but he has his moments of ingenuity. And I think he often in the series is just kind of an idiot. He's a genial dolt. I would say that he's a little bit of a genial dolt in the stories. I mean, he, you know, we're not talking about the spy ones, but some of the stuff that he does in the Spy stories and partners in crime is just baffling. Sure, like, bafflingly sure. Bafflingly stupid. But he thinks, you know what it is? He he thinks quickly on his feet. He does. And, yes. and I don't get that sense from the Tommy as played by James Warwick in the series. I don't think he thinks fast anywhere. Right. By the way, it's a quibble because I love the way that they that they play the characters. And just like the Affair of the Pink Pearl, this is a pretty straight adaptation of the original, perhaps even a little surprisingly so. But there's Down more. to some of the dialogue, actually. Yeah, again, down to the dialogue. I mean, there's also more, you know, in Affair of the Pink Pearl, they were relying on the two introductory chapters plus that short story. And here we have two chapters that make up the story. So I suppose there was enough material for them not to really have to invent anything else to get 50 minutes out of it. The biggest change is that instead of going as these two American detectives created by Isabel Ostrander, who no one would remember in 1983, they go as Holmes and Watson. And there's a funny moment when Tommy's like, oh, great idea. I can't wait to have the deerstalker cap and the pipe. And Tuppence is like, "Mm mm-hmm. And then they cut to the masquerade. And she's dressed as Holmes and he's dressed as Watson. (laughs) (laughs) She showed him. We know who wears the pants in that marriage. I was really curious, given the sometimes somewhat low production value of this series or low seeming production value. Pretty, pretty low production value. (laughs) But I was I was curious to see how they were going to handle the violent stabbing in the booth. It was done kind of well. Like the woman is like fluttering. Her chest is fluttering like a bird when they come upon her. Like I I believed she was dying and stabbed. I did, although the place where the low production value was the worst was actually in the Chelsea After Hours Club because the lights are like in a in a grocery store at night. That's how light it was in there. And like, <laughs> like it might have it might have been filmed at a Tesco's. <laughs> it, absolutely, you, like you might as well have like had a bunch of people in masks in Tesco. They had a lot of costumes though. The costumes were pretty great, and there were a lot of them. 
at the masquerade. They also have a, they also have a very like um, as if you didn't know where they were going. There was like a very like winky waitress who has to explain that if you order a coffee, it means gin, and if you order a tea, it means whiskey. Right. They did add an interview directly with Bingo. Ooh, that's a Bingo. Which I appreciate it, it since it is mm-hmm. it is nice to see from Bingo. And then two other things. There was one added scene where Tuppence is like, are men really stupid enough to have affairs with their best friend's wives? And Tommy's like, mm, yeah. And then Tuppence is like, who's your best friend, Tommy? And he says, you are. It's very sweet. Oh, Tommy Aww. and Toppins. And then um, it was driving me crazy the whole episode who was playing Sir Arthur, where I had seen him before. Were you able to pick up on it, Catherine? I did not. He would go on to play someone quite well known to literature nerds everywhere 12 years later. So in 1995, and at a vaunted, celebrated adaptation of a Jane Austen classic, Pride and Prejudice, he played. You mistake me, my dear. I have a high respect for your nerves. They've been my old friends these 20 years at least. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was Mr. Bennett. up finessing the king our latest tommy and tuppence partners in crime foray always a delight to have a little sit down with tnt i would say anyway i think i still like tommy tuppence a bit more than Catherine, but i don't mind them. i feel like you're warming up to them a little bit with this partners in crime experience by the way had you read partners in crime before because i don't think i had i don't believe so no. yeah i'm a little embarrassed by how many of these Christie's, the lesser-known thrillery Christie's. I always presented myself to the world as a person who had read every single word that Agatha Christie had put out into the world, other than her autobiography, which now I've read. But I hadn't, clearly. So I don't even know who I am anymore. Well, we're, we're making up for that. <laughs> we, I'd get, say we are. You'll get your sense of identity back. Yeah, I'd, I'd say we are. Join us next week when we will be covering our next novel. Very exciting. Three-act tragedy. And it's a Poirot. It's a Poirot. This is the first of nine Poirots in a row. So get ready, guys. <laughs> we got lots of Poirot to come. And in the meantime, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com or find us on social media, on Twitter at allaboutthedame. You can find Catherine at Brobcat, or you can find us on Instagram at All About Agatha, or on Facebook. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. And please do take a moment to rate and review us wherever you are listening to this podcast. It really, really helps us out. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.